0: Chapter 13 of Izzy Popenjoy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Izzy Popenjoy by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 13. More news from Italy. Mr. Houghton took Lady George down to dinner, but Jack de Baron sat on his left hand. Next to him was Augusta Mildmay, who had been consigned to his care. Then came Lord George, sitting opposite to his host at a round table, with Mrs. Houghton at his right hand. Mrs. Mildmay and Miss Hetta Houghton filled up the vacant places. To all this a great deal of attention had been given by the hostess. She had not wished to throw her cousin Jack and Miss Mildmay together. She would probably have said to a confidential friend that there had been enough of all that. In her way, she liked it, Gus, Mildmay, but Gus was not good enough to marry her cousin. Gus herself must know that such a marriage was impossible. She had on occasion said a word or two to Gus upon the subject. She had thought that a little flirtation between Jack and her other friend, Lady George, might put things right. And she had thought, too, or perhaps felt rather than thought, that Lord George had emancipated himself from the thraldom of his late love rather too quickly. Mary was a dear girl. She was quite prepared to make Mary her friend, being in truth somewhat sick of the ill humours and disappointments of Gus Mildmay, but it might be as well that Mary should be a little checked in her triumph. She herself had been obliged to put up with old Mr. Houghton. She never for a moment told herself that she had done wrong, but of course she required compensation. When she was manoeuvring she never lost sight of her manoeuvres. She had had all this in her mind when she made up her little dinner-party. She had had it all in her mind when she arranged the seats. She didn't want to sit next to Jack herself, because Jack would have talked to her to the exclusion of Lord George, so she placed herself between Lord George and Mr. Mildmay. It had been necessary that Mr. Mildmay should take Miss Houghton down to dinner, and therefore she could not separate Gus from Jack de Baron. Anybody who understands dinner parties will see it all at a glance. But she was convinced that Jack would devote himself to Lady George at his left hand, and so he did. "'Just come up to town, haven't you?' said Jack. "'Only last week.' "'This is the nicest time in the year for London. Unless you do a deal of hunting, then it's a grind.' "'I never hunt at all. Lord George won't let me.' i wish someone one wouldn't let me it would save me a deal of money and a great deal of misery it's all a delusion and a snare you never get a run nowadays do you think so i'd rather hunt than do anything that's because you are not let to do it the perversity of human nature you know the only thing i'm not allowed to do is to marry and it's the only thing i care for who prevents it captain de baron there's a new order come out from the horse guards yesterday No one under a field officer is to marry, unless he has got two thousand pounds a year. Marrying is cheaper than hunting. Of course, Lady George, you may buy your horses cheaper, dear, and you may do the same with your wives. You may have a cheap wife who doesn't care for dress, and likes to sit at home, and read good books. That's just what I do. But then they're apt to go wrong and to get out of order. How do you mean? I shan't get out of order, I hope. The wheels become rusty, don't you think? And then they won't go as they ought. They scold and turn up their noses. What I want to find is perfect beauty, devoted affection, and fifty thousand pounds." How modest you are! In all this badinage, there was not much to make a rival angry. But Miss Mildmay, who heard a word or two now and then, WAS angry. He was talking to a pretty woman about marriage and money, and of course that amounted to flirtation. Lord George, on her other hand, now and then said a word to her, but he was never given to saying many words, and his attention was nearly monopolized by his hostess. She had heard the last sentence, and determined to join the conversation. "'If you had the fifty thousand pounds, Captain de Baron, she said, "'I think you would manage to do without the beauty and the devoted affection.' "'That's ill-natured, Miss Mildmay, though it may be true. Beggars can't be choosers.' But you've known me a long time, and I think it's unkind that you should run me down with a new acquaintance. Suppose I was to say something bad of you?" "'You can say whatever you please, Captain de Baron. "'There is nothing bad to say, of course, except that you are always down on a poor fellow in distress. Don't you think it's a grand thing to be good-natured, Lady George?' "'Indeed I do. It's almost better than being virtuous.' Ten to one. I don't see the good of virtue myself.' it always makes people stingy and cross and ill-mannered i think one should always promise to do everything that is asked nobody would be fool enough to expect you to keep your word afterwards and you'd give a lot of pleasure i think promises ought to be kept captain de baron i can't agree to that that's bondage and it puts an embargo on the pleasant way of living that i like i hate all kind of strictness and duty and self-denying and that kind of thing It's rubbish, don't you think so?' "'I suppose one has to do one's duty.' "'I don't see it. I never do mine.' "'Suppose there were a battle to fight?' "'I should get invalided at once. I made up my mind to that long ago. Fancy the trouble of it. And when they shoot you, they don't shoot you dead but knock half your face away, or something of that sort. Luckily, we live in an island and haven't much fighting to do.' If we hadn't lived in an island, I should never have gone into the army." This was not flirting, certainly. It was all sheer nonsense—words without any meaning in them. But Mary liked it. She decidedly would not have liked it, had it ever occurred to her that the man was flirting with her. It was the very childishness of the thing that pleased her—the contrast to conversation at Manor Cross, where no childish word was ever spoken and though she was by no means prepared to flirt with Captain de Baron, still she found in him something of the realisation of her dreams. There was the combination of manliness, playfulness, good looks, and good humour which she had pictured to herself. To sit well dressed in a well-lighted room and have nonsense talk to her suited her better than a petticoat conclave, and she knew of no harm in it. Her father encouraged her to be gay, and altogether discouraged petticoat conclaves. So she smiled her sweetest on Captain de Baron and replied to his nonsense with other nonsense and was satisfied, but Gus Mildmay was very much dissatisfied, both as to the amusement of the present moment and as to the conduct of Captain de Baron generally. She knew London life well, whereas Lady George did not know it at all, and she considered that this was flirtation. She may have been right in any accusation which she made in her heart against the man but she was quite wrong in considering Lady George to be a flirt. She had, however, grievances of her own—great grievances. It was not only that the man was attentive to some one else, but that he was not attentive to her. He and she had had many passages in life together, and he owed it to her, at any rate, not to appear to neglect her. And then what a stick was that other man on the other side of her, that young woman's husband! During the greater part of dinner she was sitting speechless, not only loverless, but manless. It is not what one suffers that kills one, but what one knows that other people see that one suffers. There was not very much conversation between Lord George and Mrs. Houghton at dinner. Perhaps she spoke as much to Mr. Mildmay as to him, for she was a good hostess, understanding and performing her duty But what she did say to him she said very graciously, making allusions to further intimacy between herself and Mary, flattering his vanity by little speeches as to Manor cross, always seeming to imply that she felt hourly the misfortune of having been forced to decline the honour of such an alliance as had been offered to her. He was, in truth, as innocent as his wife, except in this, that he would not have wished her to hear all that Mrs. Houghton said to him whereas Mary would have had not the slightest objection to his hearing all the nonsense between her and Captain De Baron, The ladies sat a long time after dinner, and when they went, Mrs. Houghton asked her husband to come up in ten minutes. They did not remain much longer, but during those ten minutes Gus Mildmay said something of her wrongs to her friend, and Lady George heard some news from Miss Houghton. Miss Houghton had got Lady George onto a sofa and was talking to her about Brotherton and Manor Cross. "'So the Marquis is coming,' she said. "'I knew the Marquis years ago, when we used to be staying with the de Barons, Adelaide's father and mother. She was alive then, and the Marquis used to come over there. So he is married?' "'Yes, an Italian.' "'I did not think he would ever marry. It makes a difference to you. Does it not?' "'I don't think of such things.' YOU WILL NOT LIKE HIM, FOR HE IS THE VERY OPPOSITE TO LORD GEORGE. I DON'T KNOW THAT I SHALL EVER EVEN SEE HIM. I DON'T THINK HE WANTS TO SEE ANY OF US. I DARE SAY NOT. HE USED TO BE VERY HANDSOME, AND VERY FOND OF LADY SOCIETY. BUT I THINK THE MOST SELFISH HUMAN BEING I EVER KNEW IN MY LIFE. THAT IS A COMPLAINT THAT YEARS DO NOT CURE. HE AND I WERE GREAT FRIENDS ONCE. DID YOU QUARREL? OH, DEAR NO. I had rather a large fortune of my own, and there was a time in which he was, perhaps, a little in want of money. But they had to build a town on his property in Staffordshire, and you see, that did instead. "'Did instead?' said Lady George, altogether in the dark. There was suddenly a great increase to his income, and of course that altered his view. I am bound to say that he was very explicit. He could be so, without suffering himself, or understanding that any one else would suffer.' I tell you, because you are one of the family, and would, no doubt, hear it all some day through Adelaide. I had a great escape.' "'And he a great misfortune,' said Mary civilly. "'I think he had, to tell you the truth. I am good-tempered, long-suffering, and have a certain grain of sagacity that might have been useful to him. Have you heard about this Italian lady?' "'Only that she is an Italian lady.' He is about my age if i remember rightly there is hardly a month or two between us she is three or four years older you knew her then i knew of her i have been curious enough to inquire which is i dare say more than anybody has done at manor cross surely not we heard of it only since our own marriage exactly but the marquis was always fond of a little mystery It was the news of your marriage that made him hint at the possibility of such a thing, and he did not tell the fact till he had made up his mind to come home. I do not know that he has told all now. What else is there? She has a baby, a boy." Mary felt that the colour flew to her cheeks, but she knew that it did so, not from any disappointment of her own, not because these tidings were in truth a blow to her, but because others—the lady, for instance—would think that she suffered. I am afraid it is so," said Miss Houghton. She may have twenty for what I care," said Mary, recovering herself. I think Lord George ought to know. Of course I shall tell him what you told me. I am sorry that he is not nice, that's all. I should have liked a brother-in-law that I could have loved. And I wish he had married an Englishwoman. I think English women are best for English men. I think so, too. I am afraid you will none of you like the lady. She cannot speak a word of English. Of course you will use my name in telling Lord George. I heard it all from a friend of mine who is married to one of the secretaries at the Embassy." Then the gentleman came in, and Mary began to be in a hurry to get away, that she might tell this news to her husband. In the meantime Gus Mildmay made her complaints, deep but not loud. She and Mrs. Houghton had been very intimate as girls, knew each other's secrets, and understood each other's characters. "'Why did you have him to such a party as this?' said Gus. "'I told you he was coming.' "'But you didn't tell me about that young woman. You put him next to her on purpose to annoy me.' "'That's nonsense. You know as well as I do that nothing had come of it. You must drop it, and you'd better do it at once. You don't want to be known as the girl who is dying for the love of a man she can't marry. That's not your Michi.' That's my own affair. If I choose to stick to him, you, at least, ought not to cross me." "'But he won't stick to you. Of course he's my cousin. And I don't see why he's to be supposed never to say a word to anyone else, when it's quite understood that you're not going to have one another. What's the good of being a dog in the manger?' "'Adelaide, you never had any heart.' Of course not, or if I had, I knew how to get the better of so troublesome an appendage. I hate hearing about hearts. If he'd take you to-morrow, you wouldn't marry him?" "'Yes, I would." "'I don't believe it. I don't think you'd be so wicked. Where would you live, and how? How long would it be before you hated each other? Hearts—as if hearts weren't just like anything else, which either you can, or you cannot afford yourself. Do you think I couldn't go and fall in love to-morrow, and think it the best fun in the world?' Of course it's nice to have a fellow like Jack, always ready to spoon, and sending one things, and riding with one, and all that. I don't know any young woman in London would like it better than I should. But I can't afford it, my dear, and so I don't do it.' "'It seems to me you are going to do it with your old lover.' "'Dear Lord George, I swear it's only to bring Mary down a peg, because she is so proud of her nobleman. And then he is handsome. But, my dear, I've pleased myself.' I have got a house over my head, and a carriage to sit in, and servants to wait on me, and I've settled myself. Do you likewise, and you shall have your Lord George, or Jack de Baron if he pleases, only don't go too far with him." "'Adelaide,' said the other, "'I'm not good, but you're downright bad.' Mrs. Houghton only laughed as she got up from her seat to welcome the gentlemen, as they entered the room. Mary, as soon as the door of the broom had been closed upon her and her husband, began to tell her story. "'What do you think Miss Houghton has told me? Lord George, of course, could have no thoughts about it, and did not at first very much care what the story might have been. She says that your brother was married ever so long ago.' "'I don't believe it,' said Lord George, suddenly and angrily. "'A year before we were married, I mean.' "'I don't believe it. AND SHE SAYS THAT THEY HAVE A SON. WHAT? THAT THERE IS A BABY, A BOY. SHE HEARD IT ALL FROM SOME FRIENDS OF HERS AT ROME. IT CAN'T BE TRUE. SHE SAID THAT I HAD BETTER TELL YOU. DOES IT MAKE YOU UNHAPPY, GEORGE? TO THIS HE MADE NO IMMEDIATE ANSWER. WHAT CAN IT MATTER WHETHER HE WAS MARRIED TWO MONTHS AGO OR TWO YEARS? IT DOES NOT MAKE ME UNHAPPY. AS SHE SAID THIS, SHE LOCKED HERSELF CLOSE INTO HIS ARM. Why should he deceive us? That would make me unhappy. If he had married in a proper way, and had a family here in England, of course I should have been glad. I should have been loyal to him as I am to the others. But if this be true, of course, it will make me unhappy. I do not believe it. It is some gossip.' "'I could not but tell you.' "'It is some jealousy. There was a time when they said that Brotherton meant to marry her.' "'What difference could it make to her?' Of course, we all know that he is married. I hope it won't make you unhappy, George. But Lord George was unhappy, or at any rate was moody, and would talk no more then on that subject, or any other. But in truth the matter rested on his mind all the night. End of chapter 13